City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Production Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars, now in their 30th year, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today's seminar is devoted to the production of the Broadway musical, Thoroughly Modern Millie. With the members of its creative and production teams, we will follow this show from its beginning as a work for the stage through to the current production now on Broadway. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theatre Wing, and now with great pleasure, let me introduce our moderator for the seminar, Roy A. Seminar, a veteran producer and president of the American Theatre Wing. Roy. Thank you, Isabel. We're delighted to be here to dissect Thoroughly Modern Millie and find out why it became such a hit. So let me introduce our panel, if I can. On my far right is Rob Ashford, the choreographer. Next to him is Janine Tesori, who is the, uh, did the music for the show. Dick Scanlon, who wrote the lyrics in the book. And left is Hal Luftig, a producer of the show. Nina Lannan, the general manager. And Michael Mayer, the director. Now, uh, these are the people who really made the show uh, what it is today. So let me, uh, let's, what we'd like to do is trace the history of the show. What happened from, the, it's the, the kernel of an idea through the marketing of it today. So I think I'll, Start with you, Dick. I think you have the deepest <coughs> roots in uh, Thoroughly Modern Millie. Uh, how did it come about? Well, <coughs> I got the idea very early on in my writing career. Uh, I was uh, actually just beginning to write, and I had seen the movie I, uh, <coughs> sort of a few times uh, in a short amount of time, and I had been struck by how idiosyncratic the characters were, that they were not stock characters, that the, that the writer at work, who turned out to be the film writer Richard Morris, had a really wonderful, uh, delicious sense of language, and mostly by the fact that the, the three young people in the, in the story, Millie, Jimmy, and Miss Dorothy, uh, all had uh, the same objective, and I found it to be a profound one, and that was that they were on a, on a gut level, very dissatisfied and unhappy with the life that they were fated to live with their, with their lot in life, for varying reasons. Uh, and they set about to change that. And I thought that was a really a big idea that I really related to, because that's what brought me to New York City, and that was sort of the story of my young days. And when was this that you were? Uh, this was in the late 80s. 
And at that time, since I had, you know, just begun writing, I, and I instantly knew, Hal, that it would be a $10 million musical. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think anybody would say, you know, hey, unknown, unpublished, untried writer, of course we're going to let you do this. So I set about writing many, many other things. And uh, I wrote, you know, and, and, and began to accumulate a lot of publication and whatnot. And, uh, and finally came, I completed a novel that I'd been working on for some time, and this idea never went away. It just was always there with me. Was this before there was a trend to take uh, Hollywood movies and turn them into Broadway musicals? Well, it was 1988, so I guess the answer would be no. And it's, I think the answer to that, I mean, it's certainly not nothing like it is today. And um, again, it wasn't, it was never about, um, boy, this movie and the, the, the way the movie chooses to tell its story should be put on stage. It was that the story and the characters I thought were stage worthy. And from the beginning, I had the sense that the stage version could be reimagined in many, many ways to make it theatrical. And one of the things that attracted to me is that the movie, unlike, say, Singing in the Rain, which had already been, um, a, uh, there'd been a Broadway adaptation, the movie Thoroughly Modern Millie isn't a classic. It's by nobody's definition, including Richard Morris, who wrote it, a great movie. It's, it's got charm. It's got some kick to it. But there's, you know, there's many criticisms could be leveled at it. And I actually thought that was a good thing because I thought it was an opportunity to take the story and make it even tighter and better and more effective and more what I thought it wanted to be. It wasn't a successful movie, would you say? It was actually financially enormously successful. And that was because it starred Julie Andrews, who at that time was the number one box office star in the world. It, it, it uh, rescued Universal from bankruptcy that year. Every year, <laughs> every year Universal seemed to be on the verge, and every year a movie came out that rescued it, and Thoroughly Modern Millie was the movie that year. So it did enormous numbers, but it didn't have much of an afterlife. It's not a movie that has lived on, except, you know, in, in sort of a, a cult way. Um, so that's how it began, and then at a certain point I decided to pursue the rights, which, you know, very fortunately for all of us, Richard Morris had had the foresight to retain. Uh, and I say fortunately because movie companies are very difficult to get anything out of, whereas individuals are easier to approach. And though Richard was initially uh, exceedingly unreceptive to my advances, <laughs> he was <laughs> the most curmudgeonly and turned out to be the sweetest man I've ever known. But initially I would call him and say, I'd you know, prepare my little speech and I'd have it in front of me and I'd say it and I'd finish and I'd say, you know, blah, blah. So I'd really like to adapt Thoroughly Modern Millie for the stage, he'd say, no, click. <laughs> <laughs> and this went on for a long period of time until finally I basically showed up at his doorstep and uh, we uh, discovered that we were um, uh, fated to be collaborators and pals. We were, he was a six foot two Irishman named Dick. And we were very, very, in the moment we met, it was just sort of simpatico, and that's when the writing began. I'm going to interrupt this story for a moment. Do you find uh, him today as audacious as he was at the time he went to see Richard Morris? Dick Scanlon? Yes. <laughs> totally. Totally, <laughs> 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 which is how we got to a $10 million. <laughs> <laughs> Well, say, Michael, the same way, this is a very bold move for somebody who's never d written a musical. Well, to go I've, I've known Dick <laughs> since 1978 when we were um, kids together in a summer production of West Side Story. The six-year-old kids together. <laughs> 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 um, so his 
uh, exuberance was uh, has been maintained wonderfully through the years. So this is, is is the same person that I knew then. Right. And so now you've gotten uh, Dick uh, Richard Morris. Yes. Uh, well, keeping I, the Dick I, and the everybody Richard. Everybody called him Dick, and the only reason I called him Richard is because he said, "Honey, it's going to be very confusing to have well." Two people named Dick in the room. <laughs> he put it slightly differently. <laughs> but um, so I, we called him Richard and me Dick, and that, that, that made it easier. Uh, and uh, he passed away? He passed away in April of 96. And um, he, he, unbeknownst to me, by the time I got to him in 1993, by the time he finally let me, the stalker, into his house, he, um, <laughs> he had been diagnosed with cancer, which he didn't reveal to me for some time. And uh, he was, uh, I, I don't know why, but it was something that he was uh, kept very private. And uh, he w lived to see the very initial draft of the book completed and to give me sort of marching orders and instructions and most importantly permission to change whatever needed to be changed in order to make this a sturdy, funny, moving, and true stage vehicle. That was his, that's what he cared about. Back to the story. Yeah. You um, drafted then a, a, mm -hmm. a script. And at what time did you decide that, it, you knew that always it was going to be a musical. Mm -hmm. At what time did you decide who, your, um, who would do the music for it? Who would you be a collaborator there? That was in, in uh, 1997. Mm -hmm. uh, we yeah. had, Michael and I had done a reading of it, Michael directing it, uh, that w using existing music that had some new lyrics written by, uh, by me. And uh, we were pleased with the way the story was unfolding and very dissatisfied with the way the existing music was uh, serving us. And, you know, it's, it, the f it's called a musical. And, and we felt that the music was lacking and uh, didn't have the singularity sort of a voice we wanted. So we thought, well, let's get a composer on here. And Janine had written Violet, which I had seen and loved. And Michael had done some work with Janine on another project. And he, in addition to her incredible gift as a composer, as a, as a woman, he admired her uh, ferocity and her, her passion and uh, her tremendous intelligence. And, and I think saw in her sort of a Millie figure and thought, well, wouldn't it be great to have one of the <laughs> writers be a Millie, right. you know? And so we called her and she was, you know, holding basically a two-hour-old baby, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and she said, well, maybe not this week, but really soon. <laughs> and, uh, and that's when it began. That's well, uh, the original music from the film mm -hmm. was all by uh, Sammy Khan and... It was actually, it was a hodgepodge. There were two songs in the movie by Sammy Khan and Jim, uh, James Jim Van Hewson, Thoroughly Modern Millie and a song called The Tapioca. And in the stage version, we've retained the title song, but we don't use the tapioca. And then there were some other new songs written for the movie. Jay Thompson contributed a song called Jimmy, which is in the stage version. And then there were old period songs. It was, it was a lot of different sources. So how did you address this audacious young man who was going to take him? His first shot at a Broadway, a $10 million Broadway musical. I said no, and I hung up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, you know, I've written a lot of um, darker pieces, a lot of dramas, Violet, you know, the music for Twelfth Night was very uh, exotic. And so uh, Dick and I, are, we literally hit it off immediately. I've known Michael for a while, and uh, I think holding a two-hour baby, I was really... Uh, for me, it changed my point of view. I really wanted to write something that I could bring 
my daughter eventually too and at that point <coughs> I had not written anything that she could see or it was really geared for anyone under 50 inches tall. <laughs> and so actually when people ask me, you know, how long have you been working on Millie, I say that long, 45 <laughs> inches worth of a little girl because she was two hours old when, when we first spoke. Um, uh, so that was part of the reason was I really to, you know, to be there night after night at this theater and hear people laugh so hard. It's just, it's the most incredible feeling I've ever had. I've never done a musical comedy before. They're, they're absolutely, they're the most difficult form, I think, because they're so collaborative. You know, we work completely as a team. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it's been the, the absolute thrill of my, you know, dare I say, call it a career. It's been mm -hmm. the thrill of my career to hear 1,600 people laugh that hard listen that hard and then jump to their feet. I've never experienced anything like yeah, it. Spontaneously applauding and jumping to their feet. I, I it's bizarre. I'm happy to see that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. no, it's, it's earned. It's I think it's earned. Um, no, you've earned I've that. I, so now, let's see, we have the three of you on the team. We have Michael right. and, and Janine and you. And at some point, you decide it's got to get onto the stage. And you three of you are not going to put it on the garage somewhere, you hope. So how did you find a producer and a manager? Well... <laughs> Hal went to a very expensive tea party one day. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, right, it was uh, really, that's true. Um, you were, I was invited, I knew Michael for a while, and I was invited. Uh, we spoke at the Tonys yes. that uh, one year. Right. And you came up to me and you said, what is this I hear about Thoroughly Modern, Modern Millie? Yeah. Tell me about it. I said, it's fantastic. Because I had come, uh, friends, my producing partners are Fox Theatricals based in St. Louis, and I had known them for a while, and they were talking to me about this, and I knew the film, this, you know, Dick Point, I knew the film, and it wasn't a great film, but I had seen it. And I was talking to Michael at Tony Awards, and then I got a, received a phone call, I guess it was 99 or... It was 99. 99. Mm -hmm. It was. To come to, not exactly a backers audition, I was told, and, you know, I've been doing, producing for about 12 years now, and I go to a lot of these things, but because Michael was, you know, asking me to go and he was involved, I went. And it basically turned out to be, um, in someone's, you know, very lovely Fifth Avenue apartment, a one-person show. Dick Scanlon, with somebody on the piano, did the entire show. Michael Rafter, our conductor. <laughs> <laughs> was Michael Rafter? I don't yes. know who was on the piano. Forgive me. And Michael holding cue cards whenever I sang in Chinese. Chinese I would hold up because <laughs> it was the, the singularly strangest day of my life. Because it was, I had no idea where you're going. Normally, when you go to these backwards auditions, they're at you know, the Dramatist Guild, or they're at, you know, 890, <laughs> or they're at a place that you know. So I was given the address, you know, of someone's apartment. <laughs> and I went in, and it's a beautiful, it was a grand old, you know, apartment with you know, wood paneling. I was like, where am I? You know, <laughs> what am I doing here? And there was nobody but just us. There were about 18 people. Like well, at the, when I walked in, there was nobody there. <laughs> and there was about 18 yeah. people, yes, total, sitting in this room. But it was Dick Scanlon doing the entire show, doing Millie, doing Jimmy, doing Trevor, <laughs> doing Dorothy. Singing I in Chinese. Like singing in <laughs> Chinese. And I was riveted, riveted. I couldn't, you know take my eyes off not only him, but what he was doing. And I thought this was the most charming thing um, I had ever seen. And they actually, bless their hearts, they scheduled this reading around my schedule because I left that apartment and had to fly out to the West Coast. And uh, the entire flight out there, I couldn't stop thinking about this, which 
was a signal of wow, this is this is really something. If because usually mm -hmm. these things, you know, out of sight, out of mind, this stayed with me, and that was my beginning of. Uh, did you respond that you wanted to do it? Yes, at that time? I actually did. I I mean, we then had a discussion about what was the next step, and uh, you know where they were, and what we were doing, and, and we decided that the best thing to do would be a, a sort of a semi-staged reading. Is that what you would? What was that thing we did at the land? <laughs> I would say it was a reading. A reading? It wasn't really it was staged. It was yeah. just a, a really yeah. good reading. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that so everybody could see exactly where, you know, we were in, in the right. process. We had more rehearsal than you usually have for a reading. It was about three weeks. And we did a lot of writing. And we did a lot of writing. When, when did you do that? That was the second time then you had it on its feet, as it were? Not counting your audition? No, well, we had done readings along the way for right. us. I mean, you know, All I right, probably... Oh. The yeah, first one we did was of Act One. Right, right. we did one of Act One we for the for National Alliance for Musical yes, Theater. That was before Janine. Oh, right. And then when you came on, when Janine came on, we did that reading of... For four people. For four people. I think you were there. No, no, Nina, no, wasn't, no, 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 no Nina wasn't there yet. No, that was at just Manhattan Theater one. Club. That's right. Just and it was literally just Act people. One, yeah. and it was only I, very little book. It was almost all score. score. And of course, Rob, you weren't involved because they weren't well, reading. No. Yeah. But so then it's Rob soon. came to the Lambs reading. <laughs> right. He wasn't. He wasn't actually. He wasn't yeah, invited. He just came. He wasn't right. invited. No, Rob, we invited. I don't think you smell out a good thing. Did you invite him? How friends. Um, wrote to me right. and told me about this guy Rob Ashford that I should really get to know. He says that, and he said he's he's the real thing, and I just have a hunch that you two would hit it off really well, and he might be just the person you're looking for for Millie. So we also we almost all came through you on this project yeah, in a way. Right. You're that's the center right. of that's everything. Right. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As a good director should be. As a director, yes, because I was working on Charlie, Charlie Brown. Brown in 1998 with Fox Theatricals and Michael, and at the near the end of, uh, of Charlie Brown, Fox Theatricals said, we're d "We have this show, Thoroughly Modern right. Millie, and we're about to get ready to do a staged reading. Do you want to come on and help us?" Manage the staged reading. This was the reading at the land, right. and that's all I thought it was for a moment. I had no idea what the plans for the project <laughs> would be, or had no idea that I would be working on this for the next right. four years. <laughs> this is, it's just a, an example of how hard it is, I think, to break into a team because how we happened is it's all through talk and conversation. Yep, right. And you called me, and I called mm -hmm. you, and you came to the lands, right. and Hal Prince called you, and you worked together. Right. You know, and suddenly you're a team, and that's, yep. that's yeah. you know, that's I, I what wondered when I was 21 why mm -hmm. I couldn't. <laughs> right. well, that's, a, that's the beginning of a real collaboration yeah. and how you grew. And it's, yeah. I think yeah. uh, what um, I'm amazed at is that uh, if this was the team that started in the, in the uh, 90s and it's still the team that's here in 2002 past the opening mm -hmm. and you've stayed together. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think that... And we're going to do something else. We are definitely. Starting uh, tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> we will work together again, I think. Do you have a two-hour old child? I hope not. Roy, one of the things that's, I think, really amazing about the team is that not only are we still together, but I think that our respect and admiration and love for each other is even deeper and stronger than it was when we first started. And that's rare when you go through so much. Um, it's so hard to do a musical. Mm -hmm. And it, it has, I think, bested better people than, than we in the past. And the fact that we have 
maintained our um, our friendship and our collaboration to such a in such a great way. Is well, it's clear you've all uh, you've all grown with the with the experience. Before going into this, uh, you didn't have that many musicals under your belt. You had done Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown and Triumph of Love. Triumph, right. right. And you they were both small. small. Triumph of Love right. had a cast of, of seven, and Charlie Brown had a cast of six. Right. And you said you didn't do any musical comedies before. I, I mean, well, you've done music. I know you've done a lot I've of I've done about, probably about 40 musicals yeah. since right. the time, because I started conducting when I was 19. Right. And so I, I music directed a lot, a lot of musical comedies. Right. And I've been part of a lot of teams. I've done about six or seven Broadway shows with other directors who are really, really as you know, like Michael um, Desmakinoff. Right. Um, I worked on Aida. I worked on just so many watching other teams in the Secret Garden and just how everyone kept this. You know, musicals are these huge, huge ships. They're like tankers, mm -hmm. and you you really have to be able to. I think as the center, as Michael's really done very well, be able to steer it, and everybody else is a little bit to the side, so getting to be one of those people on the side was just e extremely important for me. Well, how do we get to a real, how do we get to a, uh, a production now? You, you got Nina on board, and she told you you couldn't afford it, probably, no doubt. <laughs> Which she does every day. Well, but it was, it was a very um, a sl a slow and long, involved process. I mean, first, uh, as I said, I jumped on board to help pull this reading together at the Lambs. And then it seemed like you guys needed to go back and do some writing or some working mm -hmm, on the project mm -hmm. for a while. I think there was a, a period of, of assessment, and you guys all went back and did some writing. And the producers went off to try to sort of figure out who all their partners would be and who the, where the money would come from. And then over the next two years, we seemed to sort of go in between what would be the right steps for the show. Well, right? one of the things that did happen from the Lambs, we were, you know, there were, at, when we did this reading, there were several. You know, besides money people there, there were several regional theaters there, which, right. you know, you always invite mm -hmm. just to e either to see if they have any interest or if you have friends. And in this case, one of Michael's friends was taking over the... Annie Hamburger. Annie Hamburger was taking over mm -hmm. the La Jolla Playhouse. And she saw this and said, this would be great. I would love to have this as part of my, you know, first season at the La Jolla Playhouse. This could be our, you know, premier musical. And, you know, God love the La Jolla Playhouse. They start a lot of shows there, obviously. Mm -hmm, you know, right. Tommy started there, had a succeed star there. And, and she was taking over and said, I would love for this to be part of our season. Where their musical slot was, was at almost a year after we had done the reading. That's right. So it gave us time for these guys to go, you know, do some more writing. It gave us a gave the producers time to go find the money to do it because these are enhanced productions as they call them now. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't pay for everything. You have to help them. Um, and, and that's when and that's that when Rob, Rob came on. Right. And that's when Rob came on. Mm -hmm. So we were going to go to La Jolla with now a new choreographer. Did you did you introduce any other uh, creative things? Did you have designers that who are with you designers now? Designers were point? already oh, mm, that we already had designers attached. David Gallo Robert Perziola and Don Holder, right. I think we had already you're, you're talked to. And I don't know if we'd already talked to Otz about doing the sound <coughs> for La Jolla. Otz Mundelo. We had talked to him, yeah, absolutely. But he hadn't necessarily signed on yet. No, Otz waits till the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that we didn't Roy. talk about was in terms of... Go I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I'm uh, um, you. The, because there are not a lot of new musicals, and um, we are so lucky to have one, uh, this, the, uh, a new phenomenon has started where choreographers literally 
audition, well, audition yeah. takes some relevance, so I don't know if you wanted to, because yeah. well, that was the, the part where you, you did that. Right. At the time when I came to this reading at the Lambs, I was uh, assisting Kathleen Marshall on uh, Kiss Me Kate, I think, at the time. And uh, uh, I got the invitation, I, I knew through Michael, to, to come to the to come to this reading, and I sat there salivating, thinking, oh my gosh, this is so fun. How great it would be to get to choreograph a show like this, a show that naturally dances. The show just has so much dance in it. And, but because I was a, an assistant and not a choreographer, a tried and true choreographer on my own, I didn't think I had very much of a chance. Uh, but uh, they did hold some auditions. They were looking for a choreographer. And so because of Michael uh, and, and the How Prince recommendation, I did get um, a chance to audition for how Millie. How does a choreographer audition? Well, <laughs> it's, not, it's not easy. <laughs> I have to tell you, it's not easy. Uh, the assignment was two numbers that you did for the show. One was a number from the show, which was the elevator number, which at that time was stumbling when Miss Dorothy and Millie meet each other. That was the first assignment. And the second was totally up to you, not necessarily from the show, but hopefully using a large number of people so that they could see that you could move a group around the stage. And at the time when we actually were doing, when they were actually seeing the choreography auditions, I was working with Michael on a play that had a little bit of dance right. to it uh, down at the vineyard. And uh, Michael said, I'd really love for you to do this. Well, at that time, I was assisting Kathleen on Saturday night at Second Stage. And we were in the middle of tech. And, and Michael was like, well, this, this is, is the it. time. Yeah. I mean, you've got to do it this week. <laughs> or, or, uh, and so trying to, you know, the people at Second Stage were so nice. They allowed me to use the rehear their rehearsal room. I called dancers that I'd worked with because I was just in Victor Victoria two years before. <laughs> I called dancers that I knew. You know, please come help me. And we put together, and David Chase, uh, who was a friend and a great dance arranger, who ended up being the dance arranger on the show, uh, to help me put together these auditions. Well, I got together the elevator number, but that's all I had time for. So I just did the one number with three girls and, uh, and just hoped and prayed that it that was would be great. It, it was great. It was inspiring. It was, it was great. It told a story. That's right. Well, who was paying for all of this at the time? <laughs> and this was blind. You were just doing this on spec? You, you well, yeah, but with, with, with very assured spec, if there's such a thing. Because I, I, um, I just knew, my gut just told me that these guys were the real thing. The team was the real deal. Um, they, they all just worked well together and the show was, you know, coming together and everyone sort of had the same vision and, um, you know, there are times that as a producer, you know, you really, you just sort of, I feel like you just push the, you know, you just push everybody in or you just there to support everybody or create an environment to, to let the team work and this team just functioned as one of the best well-oiled machines that I had ever seen. Well, let's, let's see if we get in, uh, in perspective. Prior to going to uh, La Jolla, mm -hmm. how much money uh, had been invested uh, in putting it, getting it that far? Well, but I think if, if uh, just to, to put it in, in uh, outside of the La Jolla enhancement, there was about 400000 spent in the development of the show over a period of five years. Yeah. 
four or Nine five years. Four hundred thousand, which includes the little readings, includes the little uh, rehearsal times, the, the little workshop. Is that to recoverable? <laughs> was all that recoverable out of the uh, production cost when you yes. moved? Yes. Right. That all became part, part of the capitalization. Of the, right. And had, it, had the show ended before La Jolla, you would have invested $400,000. For not, yes. And after, after, plus, then you added the uh, La Jolla enhancement yes. money to that. And that's true. And if, if the show didn't go anywhere after La Jolla, yes, that would have but been. That's a pretty bold, would, though. Yeah. That's a pretty bold in, uh, confidence, isn't it, We'd in this, that you well, coming half a million dollars on. on that's what I want to get unknown, to. Unknown uh, about the money part. <laughs> Where did the money come from? And this is such a well, big undertaking. You're also very young. How did you go about getting money? And what about were the royalties? Uh, it's about the same way that you, you know, I mean, you, you, anyone really gets money. You know, the La Jolla production, um, even though it was a financial undertaking from a producerial point of view, it was a great showcase. We were able to bring money people out to La Jolla and say, look at this. I mean, you know, it, the show is so great that in a way it was sort of the easiest sell I've ever had to do because all I had to do was march somebody down um, to their seat and stand back and let the show just wash over mm -hmm. them. And then, you know, they, were they came back to me and said, this is wonderful. What's the plan? What are you going to do? You know. So, you know, La Jolla served, you know, from the producing point. I'm sure. And these the people, how are they all <coughs> theater investors? Is that how you know them or are they from different walks from, of life? You know what? They're from different walks of life. Um, I, personally, I found it easier dealing with people who had invested in theater before, um, because then just the, they understand the mechanics, how it works, how you make your money back. You know, how does it work? The recruitment. <laughs> 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 how do you make your money back? <laughs> By good general manager. Yeah. 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 Good general manager. <coughs> we should talk about the IPN also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, they were. They came on board. You know, after after right. La Jolla. But that that's a great case. I mean, we have. Um, uh, a big uh, piece of investment from this new group out on the road called the Independent Producers Network, or IPN. And what that is, is just recently, um, with you know, the road sort of changing its face as it, as it has, um, a lot of markets are you know, now owned by Clear Channel. And uh, there are, however, you know, about 40 independent presenters. I think we should explain that Clear Channel Entertainment. Clear is Channel Entertainment, are, yes. Yeah. yeah, they have some 150, almost 100 venues. Venues, which, right, uh, Throughout right. the United States and, and Europe. And all the radio, almost right. all the radio. They're, they're, they're a huge entertainment And they're now producers on the show as well. Okay. Well, there was, yes, they came on as associates because, well, this was a sign of, of how much they loved the show. But at the time of right. La Jolla, when we were just sort of at the ground level of, you know, seeing where this money would come from, these independent uh, presenters came out to La Jolla and said, you know, this show uh, would be great on the road. Our audiences, our subscription audiences would love this. It has everything they're looking for. Singing, dancing, you know, great story, you know, what, you know, whatever they went down their checklist. And so they came on board as one of our producing partners, you know, an investment really only, um, to make sure that when Millie goes out on the road, it goes to their cities first. So that was a unique form of I guess this is the show. first time yeah, that so they've invested at this level. Yes, and, you're, and you're talking totally. about 40 theaters across the country, each putting in about 
twenty-five, fifty thousand dollars you know, small amounts, and they, uh, for the chance to be a part of the show and for the chance to get it first on their right. season. And, and they realize that they can't just sit out there and expect product to come to them. They want to jump in and, and support a show and try to get that show out to their cities. Mm -hmm. But Nina, that's, that's uh, gonna, it serves you uh, secondar secondary as well, because once you're ready to put a touring show out, now that we've lost our sequence, let's jump ahead for a minute, uh, you know you've got bookings there. When yep. you've got bookings in those theaters, you know you've got a successful tour. There's okay. already so 40 weeks. Well, well for more than that, a few weeks right. ago, Clear right. Channel came to one of our previews and said, wow, this is fabulous. We want in on this, too. And they came mm -hmm. on as an associate producer for a smaller amount mm -hmm. of money, and with the caveat that they now... Uh, we've worked out, you know, a deal where some of the 40 get it first and some of the clear channel, you know, then get it to us. So we basically have now a two-year tour. One uh, company. Just one company. You didn't I wondered if you had to go into a second company right away in order to accommodate both those uh, large venue groups. You're you mean IPNN? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, we're talking about one tour at the moment. Nina's turning white. One tour. How many, how many uh, in, in, at this moment, how many producers do you have on the show? To, when it came into New York, how many producers are there? Uh, well, there are two general partners, uh, which you, mm -hmm. you know, understand that they, there are, so there are two general partners, um, and there's... And IPN is four. Jimmy Niederlander. I have them. That, right. So that's five. There's really six major producers. And of those six major producers, you always see more than that above the title because, you know, rights and, you know, people. You know, whatever they they. I like think we should explain that. No, I think yeah. we should explain that. Well, Why you, know, you have when, a dozen names When a person more. puts in a substantial amount of money, they want to know. You know, they want to have their name above title as a as a presenter, which they're certainly you know entitled to. Do, do. they contribute anything other than money? In terms of like artistic or producerial mm -hmm. or name, like. Uh, like, like Whoopi Goldberg. Like Whoopi. Well, Whoopi brought in more than, you know, names. Right, but I'm just yeah. saying that. But yeah. the name of Niederlander yeah. is a yeah. value, uh, just as, right. as Whoopi is in terms of But I think the prestige. producers have been very careful in funneling comments mm -hmm. from those, mm -hmm. all those mm -hmm. producers mm -hmm. through Hal or, uh, you know, Fox Theatricals or other general partner. Yeah. Because you, you really can't have no. nine or no. How many people. bosses do you have, in other words, right well, now? Basically, what you say? You uh, have Hal and uh, uh, Fox Theatricals, right. too. Yeah, we're the general partners of the show. And then everyone else, you know, the Needlanders, have, you know, they're involved in their Stuart Lane and the Independent right. Producers Network. Um, you know, some people are more involved, Isabel, as they come to more meetings. You know, Stuart Lane is, is you know, very involved. He's here in New York. He's at the theater quite a bit. Um, he comes to meetings, ad meetings, marketing meetings, things like that. So, you know, it varies from person to person. But the reason, the most of the time, the reason that you see so many names above the title, it, it's a financial consideration. Mm -hmm. when a person and the opening night party. And the opening night, right, right. Oh, which, which was, was fabulous. Can I tell you something? If producing this show was difficult, that party, you know, arranging that party, and Nina is my witness, was like, you know, I'll produce a show anytime. <laughs> who can't sit by who? And who has to sit next it's to who? Almost we'd rather give everyone the money and yeah. just say, go have just fun. Have fun. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe, you well, know, the politicking of, you know, 
getting those seats in that theater. But it worked. The bouncers had to throw us out. Of right. The party yeah. was yeah. so was fun. Yeah, the party even great. they had to call security from the, the hotel. I literally <laughs> put form like a chain and push the revelers <laughs> out because no yeah. one to leave. Yeah. It really was a great party. I, I, have I to can say. remember when uh, you used to tell people you're going to produce a show. And they wouldn't say, what's the name of the show? What kind of a show it is? They'd always Where say, the where's the party? party. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> and then talk about the show. <laughs> Truly unbelievable. Uh, I want to go back. I might have missed something. On the rights, the movie rights, how did you get that? Well, do you mean the rights the to, do this? to do this? Right. Um, Richard Morris had retained what is called the dramatic stage rights when, when he wrote the film, which is is not the whole story. That gave him the right to tell the story on stage, to use the dialogue, the characters, the plot. What was still what Universal still retained was the use of the title. They used to advertise anything called Thoroughly Modern Millie and the use to uh, the use to the song and the the right to merchandise anything called Thoroughly Modern Millie. So clearly you can't produce a show if you can't use the title you can't advertise it, you can't merchandise it, you can the songs. So Universal entered into a deal with the producers. And as Dick had said earlier, it's much easier to get anything from an individual as it is from a corporation. We went through uh, several months of either not getting phone calls returned, oh, I'm sorry, that's not my department, I'll have to transfer you. Well, why did they send you to me? That's not my department. You need to go talk to so. Oh, mm. I don't know. Well, you that's know, we went through. Tricky mm. about movie rights because having tried to get some before, they're, they're often they're so collaborative that they don't they themselves don't even know right. who has the rights. Right. So you talk to someone and they say, "Oh, we do," and then you talk to someone else, "We don't." Right. And so part of it's just so athletic, just finding uh, uh, out mm -hmm. the information. I have a little history of this with Dick because it, at one point. Eight nine years ago, whenever you were it was, one of the people whose door I right. tried to knock down, and and um, <laughs> and I remember uh, saying, Dick, don't do this, don't go any further with this, until you get the rights from Universal. Right, right, and right. when we uh, went to Universal at the time, they said, Who's Dick Scanlon? And he said he's approved by Richard Morris, and they said we don't care, Dick Scan. And suddenly that property, which was collecting dust on the shelves, oh, nobody yeah. cared about, suddenly. There was great interest in preserving thoroughly modern Millie. Right. I, right. I, I know how you. I know what you must have gone through. Do you know? I, I just you know this is aside from thoroughly modern Millie, but you know just a lesson <coughs> learned from <coughs> all of that. I'm <coughs> in the process now of trying to obtain a right of a film, uh, and it's now how you know think people just kind of come out of the woodwork. What seen? What even the studio said? Oh, we have the rights to everything. You just deal with us. Now, not only. The woman who wrote the screenplay has surfaced. The person who wrote, who now claims, wrote the article of which the the screenplay was based. The screenplay right. was, based. and this woman, another person, another woman who has said her book was based on the story from the article. I, you know, I finally mm -hmm. said just the other day, mm -hmm. you know what? You guys work it out. Here's my number. When you do, you because I'm not. You right. can't. You can spend years right. chasing this stuff. Actually, I remember they told us at the time. The person who was in charge of it said, yes, you may do it, but, and he had to clear it with a few other people, and we never got any proof of that. Right. Mm. Yeah. Right. Well, oh, can, yeah. we go back, can we go back to La Jolla now? No. I actually Tell us about the travails, because there's something I, I sense you had, you, you said there was adversity there. What happened in La Jolla? What, what, it, what Hal said when he talked about what our, our slot was in the season at La Jolla, we were 
We were the last show of Annie Hamburger's first and last <laughs> season as artistic director at La Jolla Playhouse. It was a strange choice of uh, modern, 30 right. modern millions, a strange choice for her. It was a strange choice for her, she her she was a but she was a strange choice for them. We were actually a good choice for the yeah. theater. Yes, we were a great choice for the theater. This is not to denigrate her. She's a wonderful person. And we all planned, I think we're all going to work with her. Uh, at Disney at some point. Um, but the thing is, by the time our show came around to their season, they had, uh, they had been, they'd wrapped up, I think, four very ambitious, complicated productions. Annie had resigned. The uh, production manager was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and Des Mackinoff was asked to come but back. But this is before Des came back. No one, no one was running the ship there. This is a typical theater. And yeah. they had no, yeah, basically, they had no money and, and, and no support at all. So by the time we, we got there, the set had, had not started yet. And they didn't want to tell, so Michael and I would go into the shop, and you know, Millie has an enormous set. And we'd say, well, you know, we're working. And we'd be in the shop, and there was, was nothing. nothing. There was a hotel desk for the person. We were at the big panels. Um, they're, they're in another part of the shop. Yeah. It's like, but we this is the whole them. shop. We're working. And finally, they sort of sheepishly said, you know, we're a little behind. behind. <laughs> <laughs> oh then then uh, we were doing our thing and, and getting a, quite a lot done, actually, um, in the room with, um, with the actors and and the, and with the dancers and everything, we were working really hard, plugging away, rewriting constantly as we are wont to do. <laughs> and then we would have these horribly depressing production meetings once a week, where it was just one bit of grim news You know, reliving this is making my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> I had forgotten. They had hired some woman to create a computer program that would operate all of the, the, uh, the uh, automation uh, right. for the show, which included a turntable and a series of sliding panels. That was basically how the show moved. Right. You couldn't get from one scene to another without the panels and or the turntable working. Well, she, I think what she, her experience to that point had been, I don't know, some sort of dot-com stuff, you know. She had never worked in the Computer thing. graphics or something, That's I don't know true. what. So she'd created this program that didn't work. It simply didn't work. So by the time we were supposed to start dry teching the show, the, the turntable wouldn't move. It was move. more dry the, than the tech. <laughs> yes. It was more dry than yeah. tech. So that yeah. truly we, we had to keep postponing the tech. <laughs> Finally, by the time we were actually supposed to be on stage, we would get this, this sort of demoralizing report from the, the, the very depressed production manager. <laughs> And she would basically say, okay, guys, here's the story. In two hours, we're going to know whether or not we're going to be able to start work on the turntable before dinner or first thing tomorrow morning. <laughs> so we would show up two hours later and go, okay, what's the story? Well, can you come, if you come back in an hour, we're going to know whether the turntable is <laughs> going to be moving 
before dinner. It's true. Or and yeah. it went on <laughs> like day after day. I sort of the Sartre question, if a musical is produced in the forest <laughs> and no one sees it, <laughs> was it ever produced? <laughs> <laughs> was the producer sitting through this? You well, were, yeah, you know, actually, when, <laughs> and I took sort of like this very cavalier attitude because <laughs> I had, you know, all the faith in the world that they would do this. So, these guys would, you know, they were, you know, the producers went out the beginning of the rehearsal process, and, you know, La Jolla is a very lovely place. I mean, La Jolla, California. So, you know, I would go out there, they would be, you know, ensconced in the rehearsal, you know, room, and, you know, we would go and have a lovely lunch on the beach, and, you know, look how sweet this is. And I had total faith that when they said they would build the set, and these guys would come to me, and Michael would tell me this, and I would say, Michael, you know, calm down, you know, if they said they're going to do do it, you know, they're going to do it. We have total faith in this. And it wasn't until really we got on the stage and we saw that nothing, totally, mm -hmm. nothing worked. And even then, I sort of said, you know what? It's their subscription audience. It's their problem, guys. You know, they have to have the performance. You'll be amazed. This is regional theater. They will make this work. Just, you know, it may not be perfect, but they will make it work. And it became clear. I don't know, a couple of days, literally a couple of days before we were supposed to have the first preview that... They weren't going to make it work. It, it, was, it just wasn't going to happen. And that's when we kicked it. They weren't going to come close. Were you, no. were you running up a huge bill? Is this a union uh, operation? Uh, uh, no, it's, it's not, it, no, not really a union operation. And the, the difficulty, because I was back in New York and I get these calls like, oh, it's really a problem out here, or they don't seem to know what they're doing sort of technically. But the problem is when you're in that environment, that regional theater environment, you have to let them sort out their own yeah. problems mm -hmm. to a certain extent. We ended up sending people out to try and help them and to try to get them back on track, but they obviously undertook a, a set that they didn't have the resources to build. Right. But they were your and designers. I they were very, that's right. It's we very important say to say that they had all the best intentions. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. And those yeah. But not only that, I mean, we did Tommy out there, and Tommy <coughs> was just this incredibly technically difficult, so I, I, I want to be careful that... It was the right. season It, it was a happenstance at this there was a whole series of problems. It was a parade of horribles. Yeah, right. and, and we realized at some point, the producers, you know, how this works, Roy, is, you know, as a, as a producer, you make a deal with the theater. They say, okay, this show, let's just make numbers up, because I don't even remember at this point. Let's say the show, you know, costs $3 million to do at La Jolla Playhouse. The theater says, okay, here's what we have budgeted. We have a million and a half. If you want to have a, you know, a production of Thoroughly Modern Millie, you come up with a million and a half dollars, and here's what you will get, you know, for it. You'll get to see the show on its feet. You'll get to use it as a sort of tryout, if you will, although things will change. Um, you can use it to bring backers to see it, to possibly raise money. And there are certain physical elements of the show that you may be able to keep if you choose to, such as some costumes, the, the, some set pieces. Um, you know, lights are usually rented, so you, you're not going to have that. Props, things, mm -hmm. yeah, things like that. So for a producer, it's How a... about orchestrations, though? Perhaps we, the orchestrations, we, we although your orchestra is probably going to... No, oh. no, we didn't. So we, uh, we yeah. didn't have the same size orchestra. No, no. 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 But often what happens, we had 12 pieces, and Ralph Burns, who unfortunately is not here, um, he did those orchestrations, and we used them truly as the core and expanded. So it was a very useful yes. thing. Yeah. It wasn't like going from zero right. to, yeah. you know. So you do get things, mm -hmm. you know, for well, it. But does the it general manager come in at that point? Can the general manager say, look, 
this is not working, let's do something else? What is the role of the general manager? Well, that's when you, you sent people right, out but, to... But essentially, if the decision is made for a regional theater do the, to do the production, it is their production. Right. I can't get right. involved in general managing it. I right. don't know how to hire... They have their own general crew. manager. They have their own manager. They have their own crew, their own staff, their own way of doing things. What happened for my office at that point was, for everybody to go out and, and work on the La Jolla production, everyone wanted their first-class contracts done, at that sort of simultaneously with the La Jolla deal. Because people said, I'm not going to go and work out in La Jolla for two cents unless I know I have my contract done and we're going to go to Broadway. So in, in a way, it was good for us because we got a jump on doing everyone's contract. We got really a head start on getting all the designers lined up, all the creative team, all of that sort of squared away the orchestrators, everything, so that when the time came to come to Broadway, we actually were in really good shape. Everybody's contract was done. There was no rush for that. And so we prepared and sort of set up the, the structure and got everyone's uh, deal squared away. But the actual workings of the production in La Jolla, I, I can't contribute to because they have their own, their own way of working. When, they, when it became difficult for them, we did make some calls. We tried to get some people out and some technical people to help. And, and that, that turned mm -hmm. us around. Yeah. Well, it was still very difficult, so though, because <coughs> they had their own programs right. and own way of mm -hmm. working. It wasn't like, you know, if I, was in if I had a problem in New York, I could call any shop in New York and they could come and help me, and they would understand the language that was being used to sort of sort out technical problems or to deal with scenery. Well, so slightly you know, we were hearing a lot about the show. Uh, at, while it was in La Jolla, in, uh, in New York, as people do, the vultures were hovering, as you know. <coughs> but uh, did you have, uh, had you hired your press people at that point? They have their own press. Yes. La Jolla has their own press. We right. did have a press agent. Yeah, yeah, we did have yeah. a press but, agent. But you didn't know you had La Jolla's, but you didn't. Yeah, Josh you, Ellis. Right. Yeah, a former Broadway, right. very exactly. outstanding Broadway uh, press. Right. But you didn't hire anybody then to yes, talk about New York um, at that point? We had <coughs> engaged a, uh, well, we hadn't uh, engaged them officially yet, but, but we did have a press uh, person that we were going to use. We have since changed, but mm -hmm. at the time, yes, we did. Um, well, I think that time some of the job of your press person was uh, to keep information out of the press in New York, mm -hmm. I think, and probably did a fairly decent job mm -hmm. um, because... I, yeah, I guess so, but the thing that was interesting was there was the, the show was terrifically well received it was thr through from from the very beginning mm -hmm. so any press that was coming out of la jolla aside from just technical glitches was all extremely positive so well, there was but i think with the advent of the net and we all know what's happening you know with chat rooms and, uh -huh. and i think um there's a confusion it seems to be like what has been published and typed gossip becomes believed As it's my right. greatest pain of being a writer in this business is that there's something that happens with, the, with, with computers that when people's dialogue gets typed out, people believe it to be true. Well, it's written down. So it's almost like people have become individual press people, and it's geometric, so that comes out, and I think mm -hmm. that is a very difficult thing to rein in as a press person. That started happening much to our favor, but any mishaps that were going on or delays became expanded. and. They would come back to us and from people from New York saying, oh, I hear that you're, yeah, you're, right. you're delayed right. for three months. It's like, what are you right. talking right. about? Uh, yeah. you know? But tell about the company itself uh, at that time. You had a cast. Yes, and, and they, were, they, were, they were great. It was, so, it was so sad to see them all in makeup and costume and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and <laughs> sitting there and yeah. we yeah. called all together and say, no go, 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 go to the beach, come back at six, and they come back and they'd all get ready and we'd say, 
Take off your makeup. Go home. <laughs> see you tomorrow. And we had one performance where we did it in chairs. Yeah. yeah. You know, we, we, did, we did the we opening no, number, but it was supposed to be and right. then we brought up chairs. Yeah. Yeah. We danced, we danced the opening right. number, right. and then we brought uh, up chairs. What became our first preview right. was, yeah. was yeah. Yeah, partially staged reading. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the thing was, you know, as we've all said, you know, La Jolla had the best intention, so it wasn't about that. Absolutely. They were more, um, and we were very, you know, sort of freaked out by it, but they were much more freaked out yeah. by it because they're a subscription house mm -hmm. and they need, they rely on their donors and their subscribers and their community and when these people would show up you know, five, six hundred, I think it was like a six hundred seat theater, they would show up and they would, you know, with their tickets away. in hand yeah. and yes. I'm ready to we'll see Millie, to they would have yeah. to go home. And How long several was the engagement? How long was this engagement? The, engage, the initial mm -hmm. engagement Ten was we like extended several times. Time. Yeah. So yeah. it was supposed to be like Eight weeks, and then we kept extending. It was ten weeks, ten and we weeks? extended. Mm -hmm. And we were supposed yeah. to extend it. But mm -hmm. some of these people, mm -hmm. Roy, would have tickets for Monday night, and we didn't have a show, so they would somehow pick the following next Wednesday. And they, some of these people came back two times, two or three times, mm -hmm. never to see, you know, Thoroughly Modern Millie. So they, La Jolla, was really, really upset by this, and they were trying every which way to get it done. Right. But as Nina said, we finally stepped up and said, you know what? We have a vested interest in making this thing happen, like now. And you know, when you when you do a regional production, for the most part, you're a guest in someone's home. You know, and you can't walk in there and say, "Okay, this is how we're going to you know arrange the China." You know, you you have to sort of let them do it. It was an extreme situation there. It's but, it's not. But you extended. Once we started, it was a great response. And in fact, I think that their um, their subscription drive that happened during the run of Millie increased their, yes. their following year's subscription yes. hugely. I yes. think it was so very successful. Well, how yes. long did you finally play? We played from early <laughs> October and we closed on December 10th. Was the, yeah. it, and, fi and they wanted to extend further, but the actors just wanted to go yeah. home. It was just getting close to Christmas yeah. and yeah. people right. had lives. At that time, did you know you were coming to New York? Yes. At, at one point during the La Jolla run, uh, the producers had, you know, we all made a decision that this was worthy of doing, and we knew we were going to so come. It's funny how that works because I always knew. Mm -hmm. I never doubted we would. I never doubted Personally, that we would. Personally, I didn't either. I didn't either. But you know, you have. There comes a, a moment, Roy, when you have to say, "Okay, it's official. Let's say it officially. We're coming right. to Broadway." Mm -hmm. You know, uh, where just because, as, as Janine said, it, it stops being, you know, gossip or it stops right. being rumor or it stops right. being they possibly are. Yeah. You, when you say, we are coming, and you speak to a theater owner and the theater owner commits a theater and, you know, well, you then enter the highway. Mm -hmm. There is a story about the cast then, and, and, he, and the cast did not stay exactly as you had well, it in, in New York. The, um, we did make a change. The... Uh, the actress who was originally playing Millie in La Jolla at a certain point, late into rehearsals, very near the time we were starting tech, um, I had a conversation with her and it was decided that she was not able to fulfill the demands of the role at that time. And we were very fortunate in that her understudy, Sutton Foster, um, stepped up to the plate in a completely miraculous way and immediately <coughs> defined the role of Millie as it had never been defined in any um, previous incarnation and was completely illuminating to us. And is that, <coughs> is that the company that came into New York subsequently? Well, 
some Design. are, some aren't. We had, there were a lot of, again, going to La Jolla, there were a lot of uh, considerations that we had to do. They wanted us to hire lo as many local people as possible, which we tried to accommodate. Students? Were, students were in the show. Their, their seniors there had to be in the show. There was... And they were good. They, they were, were good. good. There was a, some non-union dancers that they insisted upon just to keep costs low. Uh, we expanded the cast here, so there was a, there were a lot of conditions in La Jolla, and we defined the show what, what the show really needed and, and didn't need. So there were some changes as far as the ensemble goes, according according to those. And the uh, principles too. I mean, yeah. the the roles were substantially rewritten and rethought. Um, I think that when we once we knew Sutton was our Millie, I think she <coughs> really determined a lot in terms of just who she is as, as, a, as an actress and as a character, we needed to build a cast around her. So some changes needed to be made in that regard also. Okay, so we now have a word about at Christmas time. And <coughs> you know you're coming to New York. Well, I'd also like to right. say the producers were terrific mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they kept us, the creative team, in La Jolla throughout the entire run to continue working on the show. So we were able to stay there and continue the work. Which is uh, not how it's usually done. Which is not at all how it's usually done. And we did a lot of good work. We were able to go there and see it in the evening. We were able to brainstorm in the day and then go and then try to imagine the thoughts of that day fitting into that production we saw <laughs> at night. It was very advantageous to the process. The, the, um, it's been produced so well, this piece, and part of it is that um, the, there's a new, the new phenomenon also of using regional theaters as a means to an end, and how you are, I mean, Hal said it so well, you're a guest in their house, but you are a guest with great demands of being a guest. You're not a guest that's just going to sit by the fireplace. Mm -hmm. You're going to, you know, look out the window and rearrange the furniture, and that's why you're there. And so there's this constant balance that Nina said, like, they have their own government, they have their own press, they have their own manager going on. But you are looking to be able to work and change, and regional theaters are not always built that way. You know, for they, they, they often, they'll produce something that stays the same from opening night. And we kept working. Right. And they kept us out there mm -hmm. so we could keep looking at it and, uh, you know, and, and con uh, s because the piece is fluid, and it was fluid all through previews right. here. We're but that's, that's very <laughs> consistent with the way that the show's been produced since the very first reading that right. we did was the, this producing team has been, I think, unique in, in that they understood from the beginning what uh, the developmental process mm -hmm. for a show like this needed to be. Because the and changes. every step of the way, we right. had some very strange readings that were just, like we said before, just singing mm -hmm. the songs. For four people. For four people. Yeah. Or we just had the producers with Nina in a room. We did a lot of that. And that, and that kind of work really paid off. And well, to we're we're going to want to move the show to New York but and, and hear all about that. But before we do, why don't we pause now and uh, have a word about the American Theatre Wing given to us by Isabel Stevenson. Can we please? Before we get back to the American Theatre Wing seminar working in the theatre, this is on production, the wonderful show of Thoroughly Modern Millie. I want to remind you that these seminars are only one of many programs that the Wing undertakes. You are probably familiar with the American Theatre Wing's Tony Awards given for excellence in the craft of theatre but we also have a very substantial grants and scholarship program. 
providing aid to off-off and off-off, off-off Broadway theaters, <laughs> as well as to promising students to pursue studies in the theater arts. As a long-established charity, the Wing has other meaningful and thriving programs, all designed to promote excellence in the theater and to introduce young people and their families to theater and the magic it unfolds. Our hospital programs, dating back to World War II, when we also created the legendary Save Door Canteens to entertain patients in hospitals, nursing homes, aid centers, and child care facilities, continue. We take pride in the work we do. Our work is very important to the theater and the community, and we're proud to be a part of this exciting industry. Now, let's return to our panel on production and our moderator, Roy Samuel, President of the American Theatre Wing. Roy? Thank you, Isabel. Um, you know, it occurs to me we've been talking about uh, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and I wonder if, we know, if be, it wouldn't be a good idea if we took a look at what it sounds like and what it probably sounded like in, in uh, La Jolla when you left it. So why don't we take a look at uh, Sutton Foster and the company with a little clip. Can we look at the tape now? That's terrific. Now we begin to understand why uh, so much hard work took place, because mm -hmm. that's the result. I think we, uh, we paused when um, you were just about uh, moving out of, uh, out of La Jolla, having had this <coughs> lovely time down there. <laughs> and uh, so what happened? Uh, how'd you get to, uh, then we're going to go right to New York, right? So there's a story there, too, about your theater, et cetera. You want to tell us yeah, about that? No, there is. We, uh, we, you know, we made the commitment to come to New York, and we were scheduled to open. Um, at the, uh, first, we had to find the theater owner and the theater, and Jimmy Needlander had come out to La Jolla and loved it. So uh, the Needlanders became our producing uh, partner. And then we, you know, went through the process of what theater we could well, do. Well, I have to say, at that point, I was doing, it seemed like, hundreds of budgets of yeah. variations on a theme, because there was also a discussion about going out of town mm -hmm. before right. we came mm -hmm. to right. New York. Mm -hmm. 
So um, the producers asked me to look at scenarios where perhaps we would do an out of town in New Haven and then come into New York, and where we would also perhaps, and there was a scenario the about Ordway. going to the Ordway in right, St. Ordway. Paul and then come, come into New York. But, you know, as we discussed earlier, the cost of the initial development and the cost of the Loya enhancement had to be included into, in the uh, overall capitalization for the show. To about $2 million at that point, I would think. Uh, and actually, it, it ended up to about 1.4, 1.4, 1.5. Yeah, so adding an out-of-town to the budget would have added another million dollars to, like, uh, 1.2. So when we looked at the, I actually did all of those budgets, and we looked at every which way we could, we could reduce that cost and make it as inexpensive as possible, but we still couldn't get the overall budget down to a number that would enable us to uh, go comfortably into a New York theater and recoup. So the producers then got together with the creative team and had this discussion with all of you, right, mm -hmm. and said, mm -hmm. even though you guys really want an out-of-town, we just can't afford an out-of-town mm -hmm. financial. Well, the one that was on the table, and we said, you know, we all agreed that it wouldn't be uh, uh, purposeful for us, was there was the Ordway on the table. And again, the Ordway operates, the Ordway is a great theater, and it operates under a very, you know, sort of strange situation. Half of, you know, it's a half lort, half know, out-of-town regionals, have, and um, we could have gone there and perhaps even made it financially, you know, workable, but we wouldn't have had the full complement of the orchestra. Our set wouldn't, it wouldn't have been the total full set, <coughs> and we all talked about that. We said, well, what's the point? You know, that's not going to work. We've already done that. Right, we've already right. done that. The so being the legal regional theaters. Uh, the Lord. Kind yes. of Lord is actually yes. a cost contract. Yeah. It's right. something. It's as Hal said. It's this. It's this hybrid. Right it's this in between mm -hmm. situation between an uh, you know an out of town Broadway, a real out of town Broadway right. tryout. Yeah, and it, and it's very strange about what you can do and what they can give you and what you you know the number of rehearsal hours you get once you're up and running. Right. Somewhat well, limited. Right. Right. Want to explain? Want to explain though? You said that. You came, you came up with several budgets, and if you added a, an additional city out of town, it would make it uh, uh, impractical because you couldn't recoup your costs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, how do you come to that conclusion? Well, I think you need to look at the, We knew this was going to be a large musical. We knew we were going to be with the Niederlanders. Everyone knew very early on that they wanted to go into the Marquee Theater. And so, you know, it's got 1,600 seats. You multiply 1,600 seats by the, the top price that a musical can command these days. And you can figure out very quickly on a piece of paper how much you're going to make each week. We know, the about, we know the numbers of people that are going to be in the show. We know roughly the, the size of the, we know the cast. We know roughly the size of the crew and wardrobe department. So once you subtract all of that, you come very, very quickly. You can see um, we're, we only can make this much each week. These are our expenses. This is what we're going to be left with each week to pay back our, uh, our startup costs. I mean, most people look at a budget the wrong way. They get carried away by a $10 million show or a $9.5 million show. The more important figure to look at is how much money can you make every week? Because you're going to have to pay back that, that initial. And what's the period of time you think is reasonable to uh, pay it back? I always tell my investors that you really need to, something ha you know, to, to look at a number, a budget, you really have to be looking at anywhere between 36 and 45 weeks, uh, almost sometimes a year. year. Sometimes a year. And that be at what percent capacity, would you say? I, when I do these and I you know, raise money, I, I always look at between 75 and 80. 
because you can also get very fooled when you look at these numbers. If you take the, the, the marquee theater and you multiply every seat times the full dollar amount at 100% capacity, I think we can pay back, it was like in 22 weeks or something. But, you know, nobody, nobody does 100% of capacity. I mean, if you really take it, you know, literally, yes, maybe, you know, the Lion King and maybe the producers, but, um, you know, you always have either press or you have a couple of dead seats or you have obstructed view seats that you can't really sell at full price. And, you know, so nobody really does that. And if you, if you buy into that notion that you're going to, you know, do 100%, then you get disgruntled investors because they look at that and say, wait a minute, you know, how come we've been running for 30 weeks and I haven't gotten my money back? So no. what, what did you decide then, uh, for the budget? How much did you find the, what was your final figure for, for the budget? Like final capitalization is 9.5. 9.5. Mm -hmm. And you'd spent uh, a million four already. Right. So right. say yeah. a million five. million five. Yeah. Was, was part of that. So it was, you now had eight million dollars to spend to, spend to bring that in. Mm -hmm. And did that frighten you? Why? They didn't raise it. Why would it frighten them? Well, if somebody gave me eight million bucks and said, knock yourself out, I'd be, you know, you're asking the wrong party. I knew you could get the money. It's a question, was that enough to, to reach your ideals? I actually, I wasn't, I, I thought that the, that the uh, show was appropriately capitalized. I think the director, who's so much more involved with the design, you know, you, there's always sort of and the know, choreographer. That's yeah. right. There's always a, the you know you could always keep yeah. going one level yeah. up. Right. But as the music, I was thinking of the music. You know, but American. I have to say, I I I have not. The greatest thing about opening is I sleep again, because not only because I have a four-year-old, but but also it's a huge pressure. I feel a lot of pressure to the orchestra, the cast, the crew, the people in the audience, the investors, because basically it starts with a blank page, and that would be us. Right. And I think to not acknowledge that this is a business is really foolish. I mean, we are in as artists, but I've done 75-seat black box. That's where I really do pure art. This is something very different. We're here to entertain, to get people into the theater, to get the investors back their money, to put New York theater back and bustling, I feel. And it's, I have to say, we slept maybe too, well, you sleep anywhere. <laughs> but really, he'll have like a we Coke and a Milky Way and he's out, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to really take on. I feel that responsibility, mm -hmm. you know, in, in my mm -hmm. conscience that, mm -hmm. that people get what they paid for, that I fulfill what I, that what we committed to each right. other. Well, so it's, always a, it's always a balance because you mm -hmm. want the thing to <coughs> look mm -hmm. like a $10 million musical. Right, and you don't want to have to pay ten million dollars <laughs> for it. Right. So it's it's a constant juggling. And when yeah. Rob and um, and I were going through the uh, the whole show with the designers, we had to make a series of compromises yeah. at certain points. Mm -hmm. And some of those hurt while you're doing it. And other times, what happens is, and I love this about the theater. I think it's unique is that when you're faced with a particular challenge, often the solution that you come up with is better than the solution you would have had if you had all the money in the world thrown at well, you. How much, how much of the um, salvage was there uh, in c terms of scenery and costumes? Mm -hmm. uh, we already talked about some orchestrations, but what, what was salvaged from La Jolla? Um, we salvaged the poof that Millie sits on. 
in her 11 o'clock number. Some desks. Some of the desks. So none of the sets, so the sets that were having trouble working at the beginning. They're in Southern they're California. They're, 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 in yeah. set, they're, they're in set heaven. And none of the clothes. None of the clothes. So that's why you, that $8 million was like uh, doing oh. a $10 million musical for $8 million. Yeah. That's what we did. Oh, but yes. Oh, we yeah. basically started from scratch. And then yeah. I, I figured if we could use some La Jolla uh, pieces, that would be great. But that was like a bonus. Now, talk about recasting and regrouping. That's when you... When you when, uh, well, the size of the it. cast was the next question. How yeah. much more, how much larger of a cast did we need? I do know that the producers felt that we did need to enhance the cast a bit, size-wise, the ensemble mm -hmm. especially. But we also didn't want to get into the, the thing of... Uh, of having, you know, 60 dancers and singers on stage because we didn't need them, and our story didn't need them. Right. Well, we you just know. saw the clip that we saw filled the stage, yes. and it told your story. Mm -hmm. So you made it, obviously you made so the right decision. Right, we added, we added uh, four more on stage, five, four more, five more on stage uh, ensemble members, and all of our understudies and swings than we had in La Jolla. That's the difference in size. Right. But the principles were the same. The principles the were the number of principles. same number. One of them basically the yeah, principles became, was from the ensemble and equity determined that her role was a principal contract. Mm -hmm. So now we have, instead of eight principles and an ensemble, we have now nine principles and an ensemble. Of One of the other things of that, that What's we What's the size did? of the ensemble? 20. 20. 20. 20. 20. Nine principles. Four offstage swings, one standby. Yeah. One standby. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that, that changed from La Jolla, we made substantial changes in the, in the play. And one of the things that we did was we decided wisely, very wisely, to populate the scenes more with characters, other characters that we would pull from the ensemble. So in addition to um, just expanding the ensemble, we also cast the new members of the ensemble with an eye toward the character parts that they would be playing throughout. Girls that stay in the Hotel Priscilla, um, people, people at the speakeasy, that sort of thing. And because everyone in the show dances, everyone. So it was the, the difficult uh, task was incredible singers who danced really well. Because that's not always yeah. the case. I mean, it's, yeah. it's tougher, but it's we... A, it's a New York specialty, I think, yeah. that... I mean, they don't have to be too New York, but I think everyone trains, and they... A lot of people come here. Some of them stay in regional theaters, because there's a lot of talent out there. But it's, it's, it's awesome when you really... I, I found out in previews, really, what, the, what this cast can do. We threw so much stuff. They never played the same show. Not once. All through until we froze the show that Friday before we opened. Right. And I mean, substantial changes, not just mm -hmm. this or that, mm -hmm. but this and that and this mm -hmm. and, you know, <laughs> so it's not just their ability to populate, but they, they had to shift gears and perform it every night as opposed to get through it. Right. It was astonishing. Talk more about the music, too. Um, I don't know how much that changed from, the, from originally, but right now you have uh, a combination of various mm -hmm. styles everything, and, and it's so beautifully woven into it. I think maybe, could you talk to that? As a matter of fact, whether you're talking about Victor Herbert or you're talking about Gilbert and Sullivan or you're talking about Janine, it, it's, it's all, it, it works as a piece so beautifully. Oh, I appreciate that. That was my, I think our goal was, uh, certainly when Dick and I started writing, what we wanted to do was 
uh, I think, was achieved when someone said, oh, I loved I Turned the Corner from the movie. Thank God they kept it. And it's a new song. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> like, yes, well, isn't it good? We're glad we kept it, too. <laughs> so it was, you know, we, I think, wanted to, um, uh, certainly, I, I wanted to almost have an alter ego of someone who, uh, I could pretend that I wrote Mammy and the Gilbert and Sullivan and Jimmy and Thoroughly Modern Millie, and that was the assignment was to just fulfill the obligation of the score as opposed to start with me. I, you know, if I were to write this from scratch, I, I would not have written it this way uh, just because it, I would not have started with material, you know, prefab material, but the, the it, material was fab. So it gave me a wonderful assignment in terms of, I think, what Mike was speaking about, the limitations. Sometimes when you have less money, your creativity expands. And I think for this, I just decided that I was going to take it uh, to play a really great game of how could this be interwoven and that be using counterpoint. And I just threw out all the accompaniments. And then Dick and I, we probably wrote 40 songs that aren't on the stage. Yeah. In trying a big to old trunk lost in La Jolla will yeah. be our next CD. <laughs> 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 That's right. And so I had a, a, a really great time um, just, re just connecting the dots of the score and giving it a point of view, a unification. I learned so much from Ralph Burns, and we made a lot of decisions about what we would be inspired by and not try to make it dusty. And uh, I think the difference between this and a... 20s musical per se was that was much more tied at the time to vaudeville and to songs that didn't function to further story and a lot of the songs that we have now are book songs that were, were written for it. And when were they written though? Are these, how much, how much music, uh, musical changes were there from La Jolla till opening mm. night? There are only two songs, uh, there are only two Tesori Scanlon songs in the, of the nine that are in the Broadway production that existed in La Jolla. So we <coughs> wrote seven new songs between La Jolla and Broadway. I mean, we actually wrote more than right seven, right. but there are seven that exist. And then uh, the uh, sort of existing material, Mammy, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Jimmy, and I'm Falling in Love with Someone, that was in La Jolla. So the score... They were in La Jolla? Yes, they were. Oh. Mm -hmm. So I would say the score changed about 50% mm -hmm. from La Jolla. Mm -hmm. uh, we did substantial rewriting from La Jolla. How did you decide to put those numbers in, uh, the, uh, the uh, ones that you didn't create? How did you decide to put those in the first place? The mammy. What, what made you decide well, to put they, those Well, it's it sort of, it, it, in a sense, it, it sort of uh, happened backwards uh, in that those songs, because Michael and I had started with a, a book that, that used existing material, um, we had all old songs, many of them with new lyrics, and one of the songs was Mammy. And I'm, I guess I'll just have to give away the, the, the twist on it, because yeah. in order to tell the, explain, uh, the characters that sing Mammy, Ching Ho and Bun Fu, they perform the entire show in Chinese, because they are immigrants, and they are supertitled. And so they sing Mammy in Chinese, and they are supertitled, and it's an extraordinarily funny sequence. And beyond that, Michael and I also think there's something really crazily subversive about it, because Mammy is the song that's so associated with racism. And to have it on stage in such a completely turned-on-its-head way <laughs> takes, it takes the onus off it, in mm -hmm. a sense. And so we didn't want to lose that, even when we brought in, uh, uh, even when we, we became, uh, came clearer and clearer that we wanted predominantly new music. Well, in a sense, in order to uh, have Mammy there, you needed throughout the evening 
to have an occasional moment where there was an old song sort of sent up mm -hmm. in a new way so that when we arrived at Mammy near the end of the play, there was a precedent for it rather mm -hmm. than suddenly at 1020 mm -hmm. the rules change. Mm -hmm. And we also had a title song called Thoroughly Modern Millie, which is familiar and, and beloved. And it seems silly to do without it. So I thought, well, here we already have two. We have one at the beginning, one near the end. Let's pepper in just occasionally. There's really only two more in there. And that's sort of how it came to be. I think it gives, you know, some, one of, um, <coughs> I met this, uh, I think he was probably 75, this man. And when the characters burst into a song that he knew, he started crying. Mm. Because it was for him, I think, you know, to me, the, the, the whole musical is about comfort and joy. And some, uh, it's it, um, it's wonderful to be associated with this, and I think it hits younger people because there's new things that they think that they knew. Like we we do a whole Tchaikovsky mm -hmm. Nutcracker take on a twenties, <coughs> and then this character bursts into song that this man knew and remembered from the time mm -hmm. that it was new, and it hooked him in in a different way. And I, that's the the, the, <coughs> the surprise of the show is that it's constantly surprising itself. How many musicians are in the show now? Twenty-four. Twenty-four, right. <laughs> Including my husband. <laughs> well, yeah, my husband conducts it. Well, uh, and well, I must say. I'll <laughs> tell him. Uh, I'd like to know about previews. Who decides how many previews? And mm -hmm. what's the purpose of it? What's the purpose of, of previews? Of previews? Well, you have to go back to the whole question about d deciding mm -hmm. whether or not we had an out-of-town right. before New York. Because when we decided not to have an out-of-town, there was a discussion with the creative team about trying to previews? have four weeks at least of previews. And six weeks of rehearsal. And right. six weeks of rehearsal. And no Wednesday matinee. The most important yeah, thing was, was not having a Wednesday matinee during the previews. So they wanted the time to work on the show. What did that cost, cutting out the matinee? Well, you can say each show you have the potential to, to take in $100,000. So, uh, theoretically, that, that, that $100,000, and you say it was well worth it because mm -hmm. it delivered the, the product that mm -hmm. you oh, had. Yeah. It also didn't break the momentum of the week. They didn't come in on Tuesday, rehearse, and then do two shows, do two do shows, two shows, shows. Wednesday, and then rehearse <coughs> again. You could build yes. this Because your, your purpose during change. the daytime and your purpose during the nighttime are slightly different. Yeah. And so it doesn't, it doesn't break the momentum, as you say. What in the daytime, it's to make people crazy and, and, and throw it all around. Mm -hmm. In the nighttime, it's to perform it right. and to make it seem like right. nothing I had changed. I have to say during the preview time, because I don't know if everyone understands, yeah. you can work with the actors from 1 to 6 in the afternoon. Right. And then you do the show at night. So the actors are called at 7.30. The show was coming down close to 11 o'clock at night at that point. And then the which has since changed. Which has Let's since changed. Now 10.30. Mm -hmm. um, and then the creative uh, team would sit and give notes to all of the staff that worked the show that night of any technical problems or issues. Because, of course, the show was going through this sort of tryout phase. Uh, and that would take uh, until midnight at some point. And then the creative team would go and work. In, uh, in until three. Until mm -hmm. two or three in the morning to discuss what they needed to do the next day. So and we would get up and write. Right. right. So it was an incredible, I, mean, I can't, it's a very, very grueling process. Mm. That's what I was saying about the net, which I want to clarify. I think that the, the great thing about, you know, the chat rooms is the interest and the dialogue. The really hard thing that I really, I'm trying to understand is when people publicly discuss what is not finished. And I think when we're all working on three or four hours of sleep and someone calls you with this really, really hellacious comment from the, from the chat, you just think, you know what, it's just not fair. Wait till mm -hmm. we open and then 
chat away yeah. and discuss yeah. away or discuss privately. But during that period yeah. when we're all working on fumes, it's, mm -hmm. it's really well, quite interesting. Well, I should say, even from our point of view, when we were discussing going out of town, not that this made or break, made or, you know, didn't make our decision, but, you know, there was the time when you went out of town and the press left you alone right. and you were able to do your work and, you know, you didn't have that buzz coming back to New York, so you came into New York fresh. There was a time that, believe it or not, That's you could over. do that. Mm -hmm. That's but over. Because so of economics, you can't do that. No, anymore. Isabel, because the of economics. the Internet, you can't do that. When we were in La Jolla, as far away from New York in the same country as you could possibly get, you know, maybe Hawaii, we still had that, oh, I saw Millie, it's, this isn't good, or that's great, or that's fabulous. And so one of the things the producers all talked about when we were discussing out of town before we came into New York was its purpose was to let these guys do their work in a sort of cocooned right. environment, and we realized that's never no going to happen. Even if we went to, you know, Seattle or, or St. Paul or whatever, people were still going to be talking and it would still get back into their little world and we wouldn't have really accomplished what we would have wanted to, which is to let them work without having that kind of distraction. And but it that's is. Why it's and that's why we needed more time. Well, there's right. a, there is a flip side to what you've been saying, though, and that is um, you're charging the same price for previews as you are for the regular, are you not? Mm -hmm. And so why should someone go to a preview if, uh, and not feel free to get on the net and say what they thought if they paid the same price as someone who came well, in after the opening? I think you should explain that. Well, you know what? In th I, I have to take a little exception with that because, yes, in theory, you know, you do charge the same prices. But, you know, we, you know, I can't speak for every producer, but one of the things that we at Millie did was we had heavy discounts during previews. We sent out over 450,000 pieces of mail to, uh, to theater goers um, and offered them tickets for 50 and $55, close to half price. We were always at the TKTS booth so people could see a preview, you know, for half. Um, we had student discounts. We had student rush. We, you know, and, and we How do we know about that? Huh? Sorry? How does one know about those tickets? How does one know about those tickets? Um, we, we made it, the student rush was, was anytime anybody asked at the box office, they were told. Uh, the TKTS booth is, you know, there, and we the were always were there. flyers were everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, flyers were everywhere. Um, no, our outreach for the direct mail was a, it was a huge direct mail mailing huge. for 450. Yeah. Yeah. Wrap this up. Would you just tell us? Uh, where is the show? Uh, how is the show going to be sold out? What's the big? What's the? It's uh, obviously a show for everybody. Yes. What's your What's your thrust now in selling it? it you mean in terms of, uh, of yeah. how? You yes. Sell? What's your plan? Well, that's our thrust. I think what you just said. It's a show for everybody, and that with that is going to be the thrust of our campaign. That it is just sheer fun and joy, and everybody from six to sixty, mm -hmm. you know, can can appreciate that. And, There's um, never enough time to find out as much as we want to about producing, but mm. I'm we have to cut now uh. and say thank you so very much for being with us on the American Theatre Wing Seminar of Working in the Theatre. Your production is wonderful, and we look forward to many more productions of it across the country, not yes. only in New York. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank you. Bands are getting jazzier.